Are you the Lord Buddha? The Dalai Lama replied. I believe I'm a reflection, like a moon on water. When you see me, and I try to be a good man, you see yourself. Recognize this quotes movie? Stay tuned to find out or check out the title of this episode of Talking Pictures Trivia. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom and KJ. Additionally, joining us as a guest this week is... Kevin. Thanks for joining us. Kevin has joined us for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, our Talking Trivia Trivia series, and Joker. Hey, Kevin, you still like movies? Yeah, man. That's convenient. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. In round one, each question is worth one point, and in round two, each question is worth two points. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Tom, tell us about today's movie. Today we are starting our exploration of biopic films by going back to 1997. To hear what was interesting about 1997, check out our I Know What You Did Last Summer episode. During all of that, Martin Scorsese's movie Kundun was released in theaters alongside Alien Resurrection, Flubber, Scream 2, The Postman, which I think I saw in theaters with KJ, The Wedding Singer, and Titanic. So Kundun is really following the story of the early years of the Dalai Lama, starting from his, his uh, the Dalai Lama age two and him through an adult and eventually his forced exile from Tibet when he's driven out by the, the Chinese Communist Party. And throughout the film, we see him dealing with a, political situation, namely the, the Chinese communists coming to power in 1949, as well as his own kind of understanding of the world, which involves these sort of small examinations of the things around him and of the people around him, and how that manifests in nightmares, in reflection, but eventually in a kind of a small and simple worldview that sits at the heart of a global conflict. Nick, if you had only one word to describe Kundun, what would it be? Cacophony. Kevin? I'm going to go with bummer. <laughs> it's a more, more complex than that, but we'll get there. <laughs> if you had one word, KJ, what would it be? Sadness. And my word would be fading. It's time for question one. What? two images do we see back to back after the initial text scroll at the film's opening? So the text scroll ends and we have two images back to back. What are they? And I'll happily give you a point if you, if you get one of them. I'll lock in. Lock in. Locked in? All right, KJ, what do you have? I wasn't sure, but I had sand paintings and mountains. Okay. Nick, what do you have? Wow, maybe I'm right. I also was going to say the sand drawings and also a castle, but not to be confused with a sand castle. All right. And Kevin, what do you have? Uh, I had mountains and then uh, the sequence where he's opening his eyes. I mean, that's not an image, but that's the first thing I could think of at the beginning of the film. All right. And the answers were the Himalayas, the mountains, and the sand mandala, the sand painting. Ooh, so KJ okay. gets two points, and Nick and Kevin each get a point to start it up. Already, we're violating the rules of Talking Pictures Trivia by giving two points in the first round. It is a Tom episode. But that's all right, because this is a Tom episode. Um, and I wanted to start with that opening. I watched that opening actually a few times. And just for our audience who hasn't seen this movie, which which might be quite a lot of you, there's a text scroll which explains the, the 
background of the Dalai Lama, the death of the, the 13th Dalai Lama. And then we have an image of the Himalayas followed by something called the San Mandela, which is a sand painting, which is made over the course of nine days. And after those nine days is destroyed. And then the sand is dropped into a, a body of water. Um, and I, it's a wonderful image and it is echoed in the end of the film. And I was wondering what people thought of, of that kind of opening, those opening images and how that shapes your understanding of the film. Scorsese seems to cut to a lot of objects or montages. It, we're, we're often not focused on the plot or the characters. It's time to take a break and see uh, the sand paintings, the mountains, the, the temples sometimes, sometimes the artifacts um, that the Buddha has. Um, so it definitely gave the movie a feel and the and the flow. Well, that's why my word was cacophony, because sometimes they would be talking really quiet, but there'd be this really like jarring music or vice versa, or it just didn't seem like the things flowed. Now, again, I am a fan of many Scorsese films. Tom, in um, our preview last week, said this was one of his favorite. I do not feel the same way. This is my first watch, of course, so maybe I just didn't see the deeper <laughs> perspectives in this one. But that's what I thought too. It just, it, it was very, I can't even find the word for it. It just like, it, the flow was different for me. I, I, I thought um, it's an interesting two images because I, I think it kind of portrays, uh, you know, the, the Himalayas kind of speak to the isolation and the remoteness. And then the, uh, the sand painting kind of speaks to the, the tradition in that isolation. I think those are both um, you know, pretty prominent themes to be explored in the film. And I guess also a lot of the times the sand paintings are used to show that things aren't, are not permanent because they make these beautiful paintings and then whoosh, it's gone. Whereas the mountains, at least to us, seem quite permanent. So you also have that dichotomy at the same time. You also have the dichotomy of the mountains as being the borders of Tibet, which is very important. This movie is about the, at least in terms of its politics, the preservation of the borders. What's funny? I just, I didn't know if modernity was coming. I guess from a certain perspective, it's a certain type of modernity, but... It, I mean, it is in, in, in the sense of your- KJ, why? Why, yeah. KJ? The mountains, that's what's, what's the border the last time against the- Bandera. Every movie's yeah, got yeah. a border. That's right, the, the Welsh mountains, yeah. And uh, for our audience, we're referring to an Englishman who went up a mount, went up a hill and came down a mountain. Um, so revisit that for, for talks about modernity. But I was going to say that the- And 20 um, other episodes. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a podcast mostly about modernity and occasionally movies. Uh, but this is a, a movie in its political sense about borders, right? It, it's about the Chinese Communist Party coming in and eroding the borders of Tibet, forcing Tibet to lose its identity. And the movie ends with the Dalai Lama looking through his telescope back at those borders and in hope of one day return in hopes of one day returning to Tibet. Um, but at the same time, the mountains are sand, right? They're dirt. They're made of the same things that will one day be brushed away. And so there's a sort of irony in that image of the mountains, both in they seem to be uh, ageless. They, they never will go away. And yet we know both from um, geological history and from kind of the themes of the film that this too shall pass, both the political structure and even the very landmarks that make a place the place itself. All of this is even in, an, in its existence in a state of decay. And I think that that's what plays into that image as well, is that supreme irony of the incredible importance of the present political moment and the incredible, the incredible transience of it. Yeah, the San Mandelas are, are fascinating. I was doing some research on them. Um, yeah, the, the, he had an advisor, Scorsese had an advisor come in and kind of show how they're made. But there are people who, who specialize in this. Oh, um, sure. And some of them are drawn and some of them are, are the sand is used, but but they're always in the end discarded and the sand is dropped into the river. 
Yeah, and they're beautifully shot too, right? Yeah. Scorsese knows how to. Oh, get definitely. Stuff on film, holy moly! Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're done with the kind of reference. I, I could actually read you something about them. So the, uh, this is from um, an essay on the ethical underpinnings of Kundun. Um, but the, the Tibetan Buddhist monks have been using mandalas, those are the sand paintings, for 2,500 years. Each mandala is a geometric diagram representing the universe in sacred terms. It contains an image of a deity, usually a large Buddha surrounded by other deities, as well as symbols such as virtues, as compassion and wisdom. Since the symbols are created in such a way as to suit the physical and mental ap um, aptitudes of different practitioner practitioners, each mandala is unique. While some mandalas are painted, others are composed of very fine colored sand, like the mandala we see at the beginning and end of Kundun. The monks create each sand mandala in a ceremony ranging over nine days of intensive concentration. Once finished, the symmetrical design of the mandala draws the eye towards the diagram center so that one meditates deeply on the beauty of the Buddha, the Buddha's world, and its enlightened qualities. Yeah, I was actually a little surprised I want to say they let him film it because that kind of goes in contrast of the, right? You shouldn't capture this and put it in a way that it is forever. That goes against the idea of what the sand paintings are for. I think one of the, one of the big themes in, in most uh, Buddhist faiths is this idea of impermanence. I think to a, to a practicing Buddhist, there would be very little distinction between the permanence of a sand sculpture and the permanence of a film. Both are um, completely, totally impermanent in nature. I was going to bring this up during movie rant, but there's the scene where his father dies and they chop him up and let the birds pick at him like the vultures. It's kind of the same theory. You go back, right? I mean, I wasn't aware. Again, you guys might know more about uh, Buddhism than I do, but that was pretty shocking as an outsider. But then I realized it fit the theme of how they view the world, unless anyone has any insights and I read that wrong. No, I think that's right. I agree. Um, and it, it, is, uh, it is a surprising kind of shocking thing. I don't think it's... I, I don't think it is... Um, intended to be shocking it's not filmed in a shocking way the death of the father and the the dismemberment of the father it, it's done as politely as possible but i, I think again my, my reading of this is that this is a movie made by an outsider which is literally true but i don't think scorsese ever pretends to be inside of this religion i don't think he ever and and that's the why that's the reason why he doesn't explain things uh, we don't get an explanation for a lot of these things. We get a little bit of the Four Noble Truths when, when the Buddha is learning his his religion. But I think exactly, Nick. I, I had the same response. Like this is, this is strange. It's not upsetting, but it's not of my my experience or my world. It's time for question two. When meditating at age five, the Dalai Lama sees something that makes him laugh. What is it? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, KJ, what do you have? Um, he saw a rat drinking. <laughs> okay. Uh, Kevin, what do you have? Um, I, I don't know, but I'm going to go with an elephant. Okay. And Nick, what do you have? Yeah, it was either a, a rat or a mouse drinking tea out of a bowl because i'm pretty sure they drank tea out of those little bowls i was gonna say water but i'm pretty sure it's tea all right and nick and kj are getting the points that uh, one i knew i knew that one it was a That's, mess drinking I, I had water i didn't think it was tea but I, I, they, you know the reason i said that tom was because whenever they asked for tea they drank it out of a bowl yeah yeah it seemed like it seemed like liquid offering uh, <laughs> I think I misunderstood the question. Does he actually, you're asking what he actually sees or what he has a vision of? No, what he actually sees. Oh, okay. Yeah, then the, the mouse. <laughs> <laughs> We're very strict on the locked-in policy around here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. What, what was the vision, Kevin? Uh, so the elephant. He has, he has a couple of visions. I know he finds elephants amusing. Oh, um, cool. So that's, that's where the guess came from. But I, I can't recall a scene where he actually has a vision of an elephant. Yeah, does he, 
Does he have an, a, a vision at age five? I thought they came a little later. They're they're thrown in there. I can't recall exactly where. Um, I know a lot of them when was when he was older because he was wearing glasses. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. Yeah. All right. So I brought this question forward. I mean, we could talk about mice habits if you like, but um, really more to talk about our our lead character, uh, the the Dalai Lama, the fourteenth Dalai Lama, and also the relationship between the I think it's four actors who who play this character. Um, yeah, including the adult who is actually the grand nephew of the the current Dalai Lama. Oh, mm -hmm. uh, which I believe all of these actors are are non professionals. Um, but I was thinking, of, you know, what did you guys think of the the performances, the choices that Scorsese made in putting these very different kind of looking and behaving people in the same role, and um, you know, and how and how this character was portrayed. That was a conscious choice, though, because he wanted to show you the disparity at different ages. Like, if I'm at this age, I'm going to act a certain way. And, and really, for me in the audience, I knew specifically not only had the actor changed, but the maturity level of where they are in life has changed, too. So I don't have um, a whole lot to say about the uh, disparity between the actors, although it's, it's certainly there and certainly significant. But I think... Um, and when you speak about the, the maturity level and the level of seriousness, it's interesting because, you know, this is a very serious movie. I would never expect the, the actors to be joking around or anything, but uh, the actual Dalai Lama is a really joyful guy who smiles a lot and laughs a lot and uh, jokes a lot and things like that. So I, it was really interesting for me to see uh, this depiction of him as this you know, a very serious person all the time. And uh, maybe he grew into um, that sense of kind of joyful serenity. Um, and maybe that's, uh, maybe it is historically accurate, but I, I, I thought it was interesting, the disparity between the, the, um, the video I've seen of him as, as this joyful, joking kind of person and this uh, serious kid. He is also like 86 now. So he's lived a lot of life since that time. <laughs> Sure, sure. But even like videos of him in the in the eighties and everything, like he's he's a a really jovial dude. It's a, the Guardian actually in their review of this film, which was not a glowing review, made that point that there's a, something sort of dour about this version of the Dalai Lama that isn't actually true of the the real fourteenth Dalai Lama. Um, also apparently obsessively watches tv he's a big fan of tv he did seem aloof in this movie oftentimes but i kind of wrote that off as he was taking it in right you need to observe before you can i thought some of it was immaturity though i don't know when you're talking about kj because i almost felt like sometimes his guides were almost i don't want to say taking advantage of him but just like, no, 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 we, we got your back on it. Especially when he was younger, mm. there was sometimes he wanted to take a stand or see somebody and they're like, no, 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 that's not for that, not for your eyes. Then later he started showing it that he wanted to uh, kind of take more of control. Again, when he said there was going to be no more prime ministers, there was an evolution. Yeah, but he, even when he meets with um, Mao, he's quite quiet, right? He doesn't respond that true, often true. Um, which again could be interpreted as he's being aloof but i think he was i think it was meant to be he's taking it in he is intelligent he's processing all this he's gathering information and he's also quite ready to give now the, the benefit of doubt right he he sees a pathway forward for communism or, or socialism as he says and buddhism um, he, he sees this as, as potentially, uh, you know, uh, um, sympathetic ways of looking at the world. It's only when Mao says religion is the opiate of the masses, right? That, a that it becomes yeah. it's, it's a disease. It's a poison. It's not even, it's a poison is, is poison, what he yeah. first says. Yeah. Um, that this is a point past which the Dalai Lama cannot go. And it also, you also know at this point that 
this, this man is the villain of the piece, right? <laughs> you know, there, there's no sympathy. <laughs> um, Just this movie, right? Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, I was really hoping Mao was going to come out on top for a while. Actually, <laughs> yeah, actually interestingly, I, I think, I believe the president of Disney, who put this, Disney uh, released this and what, what have you, apologized for this movie, for insulting the Chinese. Well, they got big deals there, you know? Yeah. They got big mm -hmm. deals. Yeah. Yeah, and Mulan came out right around this time. So I also mm -hmm. think there was caution. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was surprised the movie was in English. It was kind of weird that the whole thing was mostly in English. Mm -hmm. um, Why so? Because it, it took place in Tibet. And <laughs> <laughs> it just, and right, so it was English and then it was all kind of with, with accents, which mm -hmm. was also a little... Straight. I mean, if if that's who the actors were, that's great. But if that was put on to let us know that mm -hmm. it was supposed to take place in Tibet or something, I, just, I don't know. That I can't imagine this is the first movie to do that, though. True. True. <laughs> yeah, there, there's something called a translation convention where you where the actors are speaking in English exclusively, but in, like in their world, they're speaking their language. I think they were going for that here. It is an American movie, but the actors are predominantly Tibetan. If you see the cast, they are they are Tibetan actors, which is one of the reasons why the movie suffered at the box office was there was no stars in it. And when I first started the movie, I uh, I thought, oh oh no, I found the dub version. Um, I had to find the subtitles, and then I you know watched their mouths moving to the English words and thought, oh no, that's not. That's not what I would have done. I think, <laughs> I think, uh, I think subtitles would have been a better choice. Um, but you know, provided that this was for sort of mainstream consumption in the late '90s, I don't really see a, a subtitled foreign film doing particularly well either. I wonder if they made it today if they would have done that. I don't know. It doesn't really bother me that they're speaking English. It's, it's. I mean, it's an American movie. It's released by Disney, right? I mean, it, it's trying to appeal to an American audience. Um, right, if this had been, a, you know, Guillermo del Toro movie in the late 90s, I would have expected it to be subtitled, but, you know, with it being Scorsese released by Disney, it, it makes sense. You know, yeah. that, that said, I think, you know, I, there was a question earlier about what did you think of the acting? I, you know, I, I, these are not professional actors and it, and it shows. You know, and, and I think the intent was to, you know, have that level of authenticity, but I certainly think that the, the acting suffered as a result. And that's a trade-off that I think Scorsese made consciously and, and good on him in some ways, I guess. The non-professional actors, I, I really like, there is a sense of distance they have between their their kind of emotions and the the actions that are actually happening in the film right there's a sort of reserve or or an emotional almost stoicism that exists there um that i think works really well eventually you kind of read very many things upon our our performer who plays the dalai lama especially the adult dalai lama and i think the the disparity between the the four dalai lamas the four actors who play the 14th also makes a sort of universal feel to it as if this is in a spirit that can be captured in in one form right that that was felt my that's what i felt was Scorsese's intention behind both that kind of disparity in casting as well as looking to cast non-professional actors. It's sort of, you could sort of read the circumstances on them. Um, a little different from how Vittorio De Sica cast non-professionals in his neorealistic pictures. At the end of round one, we have KJ in the lead with three points. We have Nick right behind with two, and Kevin right behind Nick with one point. Stay tuned for round number two. Hello, and, and welcome, welcome back to B-Side. Finally, it is B-Side. 
Today we're going to be talking about close encounters of the third kind. We're going to be discussing the famous W.F. Murnau film from 1927, Sunrise. The Icelandic movie from 2015, Rams. Juzo Itami's 1985 picture, Tam Popo. And today I'm going to be talking about a good old film that we just covered, and this is 1984's Ghostbusters. Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side, wherever you listen to Talking Pictures Trivia. And we're back. We're at the critical point of our episode where we ask the guests a key question. Kevin, if you could write your own sequel for Kundun, what would it be? My ideal sequel would be um, perhaps the uh, 15th Dalai Lama is, is reincarnated and you know triumphantly comes back to Tibet. You know, obviously, that would be something that wouldn't have uh, grounding in reality, at least at this moment. But it'd be cool to imagine what it would be like. Wow. So That's a big one. I, yeah. I didn't even expect that. You got to start with, I guess, the death of the current Dalai Lama. You could start there for sure, yeah. Kind of mirror this one. And then what? So this would take place... I don't know, 2030s, 2040s? <laughs> He's 86. Well, he is 90. Or, yeah, 86. Yeah. Disney will not be releasing this picture. That's I think... <laughs> one thing I can guarantee you. I will say, you know, going into reality, I wonder what would happen, God forbid, he does pass, how that selection process goes to find the 15th. So there's, um, earlier in the movie, you see the guy whose job it is to pick or to, to find the, the 14th. And um, he has he has a, a title I forget what it is but it's it's something or other llama and um, th- so they found and they, they sort of play a role in in finding each other so the Dalai Lama finds this guy this guy finds the Dalai Lama um, and so uh, the the new version of of the guy whose job it is to find the Dalai Lama was found um, I think sometime in the early two thousands or maybe in the nineties. And uh, the Chinese government kidnapped him immediately, and he hasn't been seen since. So, so I have no idea how that's going to work. The Chinese kind of said, like, oh, no, it's actually this guy. But everybody knows it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there, there, I mean, forget fiction. Uh, <laughs> the, the, real, the real story there is kind of intriguing. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's the sequel. Maybe is, uh, they're trying. Wait, I got a movie. They're breaking him out, okay? They're breaking <laughs> him out of a Chinese prison so that he can find the 15th. Probably not at Disney. Probably Starting not at Vin Disney. Diesel. Vin Diesel. <laughs> I was going to say this sounds like Mission Impossible 8 or 9, depending <laughs> on if Tom Cruise is still alive at the, at the dawn of this film. Got to get uh, the Dalai Lama. Yeah. I think it is the title um, Ritching Rinpoche. No, the title would be Llamas 11. No, the title <laughs> <laughs> It's time for question three. What in the Dalai Lama's dream are the stories the two communists' generals offer to justify Mao and his reign? And we have two stories. You could get a point per story. I'm going to lock in. Yeah, I'll lock in too. And it was the justification for them to come to Tibet or just the justification for the communism? Uh, the justification for the communism. A sort of after Mao, this changed, or we need Mao to make sure this doesn't happen again. I have one and I can picture the scene. I didn't realize that was a dream. Or maybe I'm, there was a lot of propaganda in this movie, right? So I'm, I'm getting it all jumbled. To be fair, I didn't know it was a dream either, but I do remember people sitting in front of a camera saying stories. Oh, yeah. yes. It, it was a dream. Yeah, it was a, it was a, or a vision. I think, wait, I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> they didn't lock it. All right, locked in. All right, KJ, what do you have? So one, I believe was famine like the starvation, the famine, and then I'm going to throw disease out there, but I can picture the guys. I just, I can't remember what they said. Do you remember the specifics of what expresses either of those things? The generals express them? 
Yes, they tell specifics. They're very specific. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, it's not this broad. Yeah, that, that's all I got. I don't have um, anything more specific. Okay. Uh, Kevin, you're next. What do you have? So the, the one general talks about how a uh, man found, or he at least claimed he found a dead baby and was, oh. going, to, was going to cook it for food. Um, and he was demonstrating how bad the famine was. Uh, the other general, I believe, was talking about, I want to say he was talking about opium in some respect, but uh, I don't have a lot more than that. All right, Nick, what do you have? Yes, definitely the one about eating a baby, but I assure you the baby was already dead. So that was the first one. Well, actually, I think that was the second one, but either way, that was one of them. The one I'm not as sure about, but I think there may be a chance, it had something about bringing jobs. So that they came and now they have jobs. But the first one I'm absolutely positive on. All right. Now after question three, we have a three-way tie at three points. It was opium and the story of the dead baby. Wow. Yeah, the Ooh. first general talked about the opium wars that the British wanted things from the Chinese and therefore they made them addicted to something, namely opium and he doesn't say opium wars, but it's opium ends up being the problem. And the other one is the is the dead baby. That things were so bad before Mao um, that these are these were habitual or regular things that happened in this world. I bring this question forward because I, I think this is a remarkable sequence in the sense that it speaks to the theme of the Dalai Lama seeing people as people not as monsters. At one point when he first meets the general who offers the 17-point agreement, he says, I thought he would be a monster with horns, but he's just a man like me. And I think the, the apogee of that ability to see other people as similar and not as other is in that dream sequence. When he hears not things people are telling him, but from his own imagination, reasons why you would follow Mao Zedong. I was wondering what people thought of this, this immense sympathy that our, our title character has. I think it's interesting because, you know, in, in the Buddhist tradition, there's this idea of disconnectedness, disinterest, and, you know, kind of going about your, your life without attachment to things. And I think the Dalai Lama has put in this sort of, um, he's put in this position where he both has to, you know, in his role as the leader of a government, he needs to care for people. And his, in his role as the leader of a religious movement, he needs to um, profess and practice this detachment. And I think um, throughout the movie, and I think throughout his life, he's, he's struggled with this idea that uh, I love these people, I, I want to care for these people, I need to protect these people. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I, in order to in order to be fulfilled in my religion, I need to detach from them and and uh, you know go about my life dispassionately. I took it more as a maturity in his life because I felt when he was younger, he took things at face value. Whereas we see the older actors portraying him, he may be quiet, but he's looking really at the hidden meaning of what's going on. I think when we were talking about even the scene with Mao, the earlier scene, it was all more pomp and circumstance. And then when the two of them were together, he really started to get a sense of what he was really up against. I, I, I'm more with um, Kevin, actually. And I think that's one of the things either the actors did really well or it was well-written or well-made. You kind of saw the, um, the two sides at all time, the I need to rule and lead and, and you know, command an army, essentially, but at the same time, peace, uh, detachment, um, observe, observation. So I, I, I thought the, the, the Dalai Lama was well portrayed that way. But do you feel he took them at their word at first and then saw the realization? That's, that's how I took it, because you can be that way, be removed. But then when you hear, and he started, you could see some scenes when they were telling him what was going on to his people, 
that he, I, I felt he might've had a little bit of a change of heart or an eye opener into what the world truly is. So it's, it's a little bit of all that together, but I thought there was a little bit of a, a self journey there to, and I'm not gonna use the word enlightenment, but understanding of the world. I, I, can, I can see what you're saying, but, um, and I'm comparing the Dalai Lama to Dumbledore is terrible, but in, in Harry Potter in the books- All the time. Yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> kinda, um, but in Harry Potter in the books, people tell Dumbledore things and you can tell he understands it more than what's being told. And I felt that was also being done here. He didn't act on it. And um, like Tom was saying, he was sympathetic and giving everybody the benefit of the doubt, but I don't, I don't think he was tricked by it, but I, I, that is definitely a a valid interpretation of, of the film. I I certainly thought that he was being naive when he thought that there could be cooperation and peace for sure um i i think that i think that there's this sort of again a duality there where he's both a deity and uh uh, presently he's a he's a man but at the time he was a boy um so he has this um he has this thing where he needs to be he needs to be both the the deity the the upstanding buddhist figure but he's also a person and and nick to your point he's an immature person at this point all of what we're saying here is is the great irony of the movie both that he is man and god right um that he is somebody who has to give up all attachments yet he is responsible for a very material thing and he has to take on the responsibility in a mature way while recognizing that this is something that fades that this is not something to desire and yet you have you you bear this responsibility you have to bear a responsibility while not desiring the responsibility um it, it's an odd irony that sits at the at the center of this movie and you know i think it also kind of speaks to the way that scorsese portrays um the dalai lama when he's in conversation with Mao. do, do you remember the the thing about Mao that he notices when he's talking to him, does anybody remember what he looks at? Constantly looking at the shoes, but he does that with other people too. He looks at the shoes and, and it speaks to an earlier scene where he's looking at his own shoes. He's, he actually is wearing wingtips when he's early on in his adulthood. And there's this kind of odd look at, he seems to be looking at how people are like him all the time. We're looking at these small details and that a person, and, and Mao is, Mao isn't even a person anymore, right? He is, depending on what part of the world you're from, he's either the God savior or he's he's the devil incarnate, right? He's, he's worse than Hitler or he's the person who let us out of, you know, whatever catastrophe we, we were in. Um, you know, it's hard to even imagine Mao's humanity and yet through observing these little details, these, these shoes, there tends to be this, uh, this twist in the movie, which is even the great men wear wingtips, <laughs> you know, right? Um, j- just like I do. And I think that's that constant, uh, I, I want to call it attention, but it isn't attention. It's, it's a sort of, it's a, it's a beautiful aporia to use the Greek term, opening or gap or unresolved distance that exists through the movie. Um, I, you know, I, I think those little details, are, they're kind of stunning to watch it because there's always that political never doesn't not matter. The political always matters and always, always matters absolutely, but it is always something that is dust. In the end, it will always be dust. It's time for question four. When answering the Indian guard's question at the end of the film, the Dalai Lama compares himself to what? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. Oh, I think everybody knows it. Okay, so Kevin, you're going first. Uh, I believe the physical image he uses is a, a reflection of a mountain in the water. When you see me and I try to be a good man, you see yourself. All right, KJ, what do you have? Very similar. I had a, a reflection in water. Uh, Nick, what do you have? I was going to answer it with one word, reflection. 
All right. It was, uh, I'm going to give everyone the point, points rather. Um, it was a reflection like the moon in water. I think he said moon. Um, though I, I'm happy to admit I, I misheard if that's the case. However, since everyone who said reflection, I think points for all. Um, and before we go into bonus questions, I do want to touch on that that end sequence, which um, that that end montage and really is a true montage in that kind of Eisenstein way. Uh, those last ten minutes, what people thought of that, how how you responded to that ending. I will say specifically in that whole time period of the film, when he looks back and he has the, I guess it's a vision of everyone pretty much dead on horseback. So all the people who helped him get here, they're not going to, it's not going to end well for them because of this journey, but because of them, he is at his, at, at the conclusion of his path to safety. But that I did, that did jump out at me at the end there. Not all, maybe everything else, but I really did think that was impactful. I, I think there's a, there's an irony there where, um, <clears throat> you know, in order to save in order to save the idea of Tibet, he has to leave it. Um, and I think that's sort of counter to a lot of sort of invasion stories where you, you hear about um, leaders staying with the country and everything. And, and uh, I think it's, it's really interesting how, you know, the, the idea of Tibet and the, the idea of the Dalai Lama um, must, must survive even at the cost of being physically there. I thought that was a really, uh, really touching and again wrenching kind of way to to um, experience what the Dalai Lama experienced. Yeah, and it was sad, right, guys? Like this was a this was devastating. Tom, I know you you used the word fading, but even that, I mean, it, it wasn't because he's still here, and and the country's still kind of there, and it's awful. Like you're losing everything which, you know, maybe a lot of us experience, but this was on a grand scale. He's losing a nation, a country, a, a religion in some ways. I, it's pretty devastating. It, yeah, it, it's, it is devastating. And it's also, I, I, what I found so overwhelming about that. So if we could kind of recall for our audience, um, what we see here throughout the movie, we see these sand paintings being made. And in the end of the movie, as he's leaving Tibet into India and he's sick, um, we see the sand painting being stripped away. Right? We see a, a kind of a metal thing pushing the sand away as he's, as he's going out. And the, the vision Nick pointed out, which is, I'm, I'm glad they did, is a really surprising vision. The people who are leading him out, he sees them dead on their horses. He sees the horses, their horses covered in blood, which reflects on an, an earlier vision he has of, of dead monks. Um, and then the movie ends as it did in the beginning, um, not with the sand painting being made, but the sand painting, painting being pushed away and him looking out on the mountains. The last image is him looking through the telescope at the mountains again, which is how the movie starts. And there's this, oh, God, I, I mean, it, it's sort of overwhelming. As you're saying, KJ, there's so much loss there. Um, but there's also a recognition of the inevitability of loss, regardless of circumstance. Um, that's, that's what the, the mandala, the sand mandala means. It is going to go away. And actually, part of that sequence is them dropping the sand of the mandala into the river. So, you know, it's again, kind of this return to nature, the return to the, the, the natural cycles and whatnot. So even as there's this tremendous loss and there's going to be incredible future pain, I think, represented in that vision of, of the people who saved him, their blood upon the horses. Yeah, at the same time, there is this recognition of this sort of, this sort of inevitability of passing, of this world and these struggles fading that this matters so much and it is so hard and so painful, but all things fade. And in the end, we look at mountains, which exists for millennial beyond when we will exist. And yet even those things will fade, right? Even the, the physical borders of Tibet will fall away, will become like that sand painting. Um, and those constant ironies that 
my God, I wish he could stay. I, I hope those people don't die. And also the, but we all die. All nations fall away. This had to happen. It will happen in one day regardless. Um, I think Scorsese balances those things and he does it in a way that frames the movie from the beginning, which uses a lot of the same images at, at, at the film's beginning. It's time for a bonus question. What does Dalai Lama mean? Is it in the movie? It is. Oh, good. That's it how is. I know it. <laughs> I didn't look it up. Locked in. Ooh, confident Nick. Locked in. Locked in. Oh, and I'm not at all confident KJ. So KJ, what do you have? Protector of the people. I'm just going with something generic. Okay, very good. Uh, Kevin, what do you have? I believe it has something to do with uh, deity of compassion. Okay, Nick, what do you have? I'm going with Buddha reborn. Oh my God, you guys are terrible. It, uh, so it means ocean. Of <laughs> what does it mean, Tom? It means ocean of wisdom. Ah, it was given sure. to him by the uh, the children of Genghis Khan. Now, Kevin, you might be right, but I was just going with the the movie. The movie tells us this in the opening text scroll. It was a it was a guess. I know that I know that he is the deity of compassion. I didn't know that that was if, if that was baked into his name or not. Yeah, it's, or his title. It's time for a bonus question. What are two surprises the young Dalai Lama discovers about the new temple after Retting's attempted revolution? He discovers two things that he finds surprising, he says in this meeting. This is right after the shooting in which Retting, his, his discoverer, is put in prison. What are those two things? I believe I know one, so I'll lock in. Yeah, I think I have one too. I'm going to lock in. Oh, I might have both. Relock in. Okay. Does, doesn't change the order. Locked in. All right, KJ, what do you have? Uh, the radio and the projector. I'm picturing him in the little room, but I can't remember. All right, Nick, what do you have? I believe it is that monks have guns and that they have a prison. All right, and Kevin, what do you have? Uh, I was going to say the, the guns thing, and um, I believe Nick wins because I, I don't know the other one. And I'm pretty sure that Nick is right. All right, and Nick is right. Guns Whoa. prison. <laughs> nice. So in double overtime, Nick wins. A shock to all, including me. Yeah, our final score, Nick with seven, Kevin with six, and KJ with five. Very well played, gentlemen. You were, you were very well informed when coming to this film. It's time for Movie Rand. I mean, since, since Kevin, you, you know, have some interest in kind of uh, Buddhism and what have you, um, from your own kind of education and knowledge, what did you find kind of relevant or interesting about this picture? I, I think the the perspective of the outsider is is a is a really cool thing. Um, you know, I, I think Tibet is by its nature a very very closed off kind of society. You know, they don't they're not fond of guests and and so forth. Um, and I think it's it's an interesting perspective to go in there and say, okay, I'm I'm fully admitting that I am not a part of this, but hey, isn't this a great story? Doesn't this make you feel all kinds of things? And I'm going to show you a whole bunch of stuff that I don't really understand and you don't really understand, but you still get a sense of why it's beautiful, why it's powerful, why we should care that this is happening in the world. Isn't it a little strange that Scorsese made this movie? Wouldn't that be a little bit like Kurosawa casting Minofune as John Paul II? Isn't that a little... You see, I still see it as somebody who has a kind of a deep respect for religious tradition. And, and Scorsese at one point flirted with becoming a priest. He, he was, at least earlier in his life, fairly devout. Um, interested in... I, I still think it's an outsider's movie. A movie about an outsider looking in. And so I actually don't find it odd because I don't think Scorsese ever assumes knowledge that he doesn't have. He seems to be perfectly happy 
in, in a state of ignorance. I feel this is a case of spiritual versus religion, where he is appreciating the spiritual aspects, even if he is an outsider. And again, the fact that Tom keeps bringing up, and I agree with him that this was filmed from an outsider perspective. I don't think he is violating saying that he is one of them and really knows the inside deal. So I think that may be what makes this okay. Going along the thought I had with spiritual, at the end of this movie, it actually does have like a memoriam to his mother who passed away in 1997. So I thought that also kind of nails home that spiritual connection, even if he isn't a Buddhist himself. Yeah, it's a, it's a personal passing, right? It's, you know, it's, it's a loss of, um, somewhat a loss of that thing that gave you identity that's going on here. A sort of conflating of the, the personal and the political. Um, I don't know, KJ, what did, did you find, did you find, a, did you have a different response? Uh, just because of your, your analogy to Kurosawa making a movie about John Paul II? No, I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, Scorsese did a great job. I don't, I don't think there was anything offensive here. I don't think, no, nothing along those lines. Like you guys say, he, he doesn't presume to be Buddhist. He's not preaching at all. There, there's nothing, there's nothing here. Um, so there's a, a video game called Earthbound, which is made by a Japanese country. And the premise is you're a boy in the 50s in the United States. And that's the premise. And it's kind of wonderful because it's made from outsiders. So it's not quite right, but it's pretty close. So it, I just I'm wondering if someone made a movie about a religious that we grew up with or knew or understood on a, on a religious level, wouldn't it be, maybe it would be great to see that movie to see what an outsider has taken away from it. But I just, it, it's, it's still just strange to me that this, this choice was made. And I mean, I, I think the choice to, to make it accessible to, to Western audiences was deliberate, right? Um, if you remember, this is when like uh, the Tibetan Freedom Concert was going on and there was a big, a big movement where they were trying to basically build sympathy for Tibet in Western, um, Western society. So, I, yeah, I think it's a little weird, but I think it was also purposeful. Don't forget, this wasn't Scorsese's first religious or spiritual film. He did The Last Temptation of Christ in uh 1988 i did not see that film but i think it's exactly what it sounds like which is very heterodox right it, it's a less temptation of christ is an exploration of um christ on the cross being you know being tempted um but then imagining a life in which he kind of beds mary magdalene uh, it, it, it's very, it was, it upset a lot of Catholics, let's say. It's very, I had, I had started by saying I have never seen this yeah, film. I just that, know I mean, it exists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I know the yeah, title. <laughs> with, um, Willem Dafoe as Jesus. And then uh, Harvey Keitel using his Brooklyn accent to play John the Baptist, I think. Was it John the Baptist? No, it's uh, Peter Paul. Um, so it's, it, this actually movie is uh, fair, actually quite, quite a deal more respectful of religion than. And last temptation um but it's 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 scorsese's religion i you know i don't know i i, I don't have a strong reading of I, i'm also not I, despite what i said i'm not like upset by last temptation of christ i think what he's doing is he's doing something subversive but he's also trying to explore like yeah, but the it, human it, part of christ whatever, whatever he did it with it doesn't matter it's still a religion he grew up with right so i, I would say a better analogy might be and this is something actually uh, KJ and I were, were talking about um, offline uh, was uh, Pierre Pasolini's The uh, Gospel According to St. Matthew, which is a movie, I don't know if anybody knows it, but it's a movie made by a communist atheist who's very much opposed to, to the papistry, um, but it's utterly reverent and respectful of, of the Gospel of St. Matthew, of, of the you know, this religious doctrine to an extent that I don't think any Catholic who sees it would really raise a red flag, right? They may have certain objections about, about various details, but it is a movie done with extreme reverence, um, you know, almost oddly so, almost 
to the extent where you almost want to distance yourself from it. It's so kind of serious and austere. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I think that would be the closest comparison. I think the difference though, is that while both directors are respecting their source material, namely the, these religions, um, I, I think Scorsese's work is, is filled with, uh, with all these inversions, with this sort of beautiful impossibility of the Dalai Lama's situation. Um, I think Scorsese is also a stronger filmmaker than Pasolini, but you know, put that aside. Um, but that would be the comparison there is these kind of two outsiders looking at a religion, not in a judgmental way, but accepting their role as someone who's really not part of this. Um, the difference there again is Pasolini's Italian. He grew up in, you know, the country that has the Vatican. You know what I mean? It's, it, it is so. It is a little different. Yeah. I think one of the things that's unique about about Buddhism is yes, there's this um, there's this religion, and I don't want to take anything away from it. It is absolutely a religion with its own traditions, and and that religion can be uh, sort of closed off. But the Buddhist philosophy is is universally welcoming and universally accessible. And I think, I think that's where, um, you know, and, and part of the Buddhist tradition is that connection with people and that, um, you know, we're all the same because none of us is real. Um, whereas, you know, Hindus, we're all the same because we're all one. Buddhists is we're all the same because, because, you know, none of us exist. Um, but I think the the philosophy and the the wisdom of the religion is probably the most accessible of all the major religions. I think that outsider perspective fits with the Buddhist tradition far better than um, an outsider perspective of, say, Catholicism. In the most humble way possible, I'd like to once again congratulate myself for being the winner of this week. I am just as shocked as everyone else. <laughs> Hey, Nick. KJ, I thought you were going to take it down this week, though. I really did. Yeah, it was looking good at the beginning. Yeah. Bonus. It's all about the bonus. You can find more of our content wherever you listen to podcasts on our YouTube channel, Twitter at Talking Studios, and our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com. We are extremely grateful to all those who subscribe, like, follow, and leave a review. What would you do for enlightenment? Let us know on Twitter, TalkingPicturesTrivia at gmail.com, or give us a call at 201-467-8679. Thanks again, Kevin, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Always a great time with you guys. We feel the same. And hopefully next time we'll get you a little bit more lighthearted of a, a film. <laughs> yeah, let's rock a comedy out next time. <laughs> we can have Tom talk about a Happy Gilmore or something. Yeah. <laughs> I believe there's I probably some Anchorman. modernity in there, right? <laughs> Happy Gilmore? No. Yeah, hockey <laughs> represents. Yeah, if there is. Maybe oh, both. I was thinking about Billy Madison. <laughs> uh, I was thinking Billy. What is the golf one? That is Happy Gilmore. Okay. Happy Gilmore. Oh, yeah. that is Happy Gilmore. Okay. All right. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Thomas Lehman15. And check out Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side. You can find me on Twitter at KJ1000. I can also be found on Twitter at The Nicknamed. Join us next time as we continue with biopics when we discuss my recommendation from 1994, Forrest Gump. I swear it still counts. Stay tuned for our first impressions of this film. Ding, 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 ding. Hey. Next week, we'll be discussing Forrest Gump. Tom, how was your watch? I don't know when I first saw this movie. I might have seen it in theaters. I might have just seen it at home. I saw it again on the computer, thanks to Amazon Prime. I, I'm not an, a big fan of this movie. I, I don't think I ever have been, even as a kid. But even now, I found it very... Uh, I was very frustrated by it. I found it all kind of hard to get through. Um, I would say my favorite moment in it, if I want to find some something about the film I liked, is when 
Tom Hanks asks Jenny uh, if his son is like him. Um, I, I think that that is a nice moment and it has, uh, it was very effective in that moment. Steve, what about you? How was your first watch? Uh, it was very interesting because I have not seen the movie since I saw it the first time in the theater. I think I, for the novelty of the special effects and the story and it being something unique, I haven't seen something in that style before. I liked it back then more than I liked it now. But also um, really hit me how different it was watching this movie in my 50s versus watching it in my 20s. It really was looking at things um, stylistically and also from the meaning of the movie in a different way. So I thought that was that was pretty interesting. Nick, how about you? I feel like I have opposite reactions. So I don't recall the first time that I watched it. I know I've seen it, at least a few of the iconic scenes growing up. Um, but the first time I guess that I really recall watching it was actually abroad in the Peace Corps. So about 10, 12 years ago, can't recall what language it was in. It was definitely not English, but dubbed over with English subtitles. Um, so I would say for this review it was actually the first time I rec like recall watching it. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Like it was a lot better when I could understand the full movie. Um, but I had, I mean, a really big enjoyment throughout the whole, the whole time. Okay. I think I'm aligning with the other Nick here. I, I do enjoy this film. I enjoyed it when I saw it and definitely it was a long time ago. So I probably saw it back around 94 when it came out and I haven't seen it since. And the reason I, I really enjoy this film, not because it's, I don't think it's the best movie made or, or cinematic styles as, as some of you were going into, but it was really an impactful movie. It is referenced a lot within the movie Zeitgeist. It is a very important movie, I think, um, in filmmaking, even if it's not, again, stylistic or specifically artsy. I, I really do think that this changed a lot of how some movies were made after this film came out. So I'll save the rest of it for the episode, but I, I do think it's something that everyone probably should watch who enjoys movies, whether you think it's your favorite movie or just somewhere in between. I, I really did enjoy it. 